Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 158 with Brian Smith of the Founder Podcast. Discover exactly what it takes to become a successful entrepreneur and what's possible through entrepreneurship from the greatest minds in business today. Welcome to the Founder Podcast. Here's your host, Nathan Chan. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Founder Podcast. My name is Nathan Chan and I'm coming to you live from hometown, homegrown, Melbourne, Australia, loud and proud. And I'm the CEO and publisher of Founder Magazine. For those of you that are joining us for the first time, uh, we interview some of the greatest entrepreneurs of our generation, really, really smart founders that are either number one or two in the industry and disrupting their industry. And I pretty much pick their brains and find out how they've done it and just get them to share experiences and lessons learned. Now, today's guest, you're in for an absolute treat. His name is Brian Smith, and he's the founder of a company called Uggboots. Uh, I'm sure you guys may have heard of them. I'm actually wearing mine right now. I've been wearing Uggboots pretty much my whole life. Um, so I go through him with Brian, you know, what it takes to build a household name brand, disrupt an industry, and make something cool. How do you make a product so cool that everybody knows what they are? You know, companies all around the world rip off, you know, these these products. Um, so what does that take? How do, you, how do you build a great brand? And it wasn't that easy, you know. It was, it was a little he, from, I, I, actually, you know what? Better yet, I'm not going to go into it. I'm going to let you guys listen and find out more about the story. But a lot of gold, a lot of lessons shared. Now, before we jump in, I just want to give you a quick heads up that we're just about to reopen our exclusive membership community called Founder Club. And what is Founder Club? Why should you care? Well, pretty much we wanted to create a community where we combined and connected, you know, boss founders that follow the brand and just give people the opportunity to learn from really, really smart people. Uh, one thing that I've learned from one of my mentors is 2x thinking is how can I do this and 10x thinking is who can show me. So it's a closed private group. Uh, you know, there's a lot of free Facebook groups out there. Ours is a private group with really, really smart vetted people. And we're particularly looking for founders that uh, are post-customer. So you've, you know, you've started your business you have customers, but you want to scale your online business to, you know, at least a million dollars online. So, you know, there's tons of opportunities when you join the group. Uh, you know, we actually try and feature at least one person in the community once every quarter. We do what's working right now. We share with you all sorts of crazy strategies on, you know, how we use webinars to increase our average order value uh, per customer, you know at least 5 to 10x, uh, how we get interviews with really, really hard to reach people, how to find amazing mentors, 
um, you know, how we do all of our content strategy, our social media strategies. Then also we have interactive Q&As with really, really smart founders. Some of these people we actually interview in actually on this podcast or on the magazine also you get lifetime a lifetime subscription to founder magazine and also a ton of SaaS perks that are worth over ten thousand dollars and so much more so if you're interested in joining a boss group of founders that are really really smart that you can learn from and give help and get help because the life of an entrepreneur and founder is Let's be honest, it can sometimes be pretty lonely. So if you'd like to apply, you can go to founderclub.com, F-O-U-N-D-R, club, C-L-U-B.com. All right, guys, that's it from me. Now let's jump into the show. The first question I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job? (laughs) My job at UG. Yeah, your job. Yeah, like uh, how'd you end up doing okay, work? Okay, I got today? it. I got it because I had another job, which was in Perth, Australia, and uh, I was a chartered accountant. And it took ten years to graduate. And the day I graduated, I quit because I really didn't like being an accountant. And uh, I decided, you know, after a few weeks and you know, wondering what I'm going to do, a few bit of meditation, it suddenly struck me that. All the best trends are coming out of California. So within a couple of weeks, I, I'd bought tickets and I arrived in Los Angeles with my surfboard and a suitcase and rented a little house in Santa Monica. And I, I came here to look for the next big thing to bring back to Australia. And uh, yeah, I was here maybe oh, first month, you know, did tons of surfing up at Malibu, but no big thing. And the second month, still no big thing. And it was in the third month that I was reading a surf magazine and, and there was, you know, this guy from Albany, Western Australia, had run this ad for sheepskin boots. And, but you know, you know, the photograph was in front of a fireplace and everything it just didn't really fit. But anyway, I just got goosebumps when I saw that ad because I thought, oh, my God, there are no sheepskin boots in America. And so I called the guy up and, you know, to cut a long story short, I got to be the distributor by buying some samples and and that's how I got my job. Yeah, okay, interesting. So first of all, did you sell the company at some point? Yeah, I got it up to about 15 mil looking to about 20 million season coming up and it just outstripped my ability to finance it. So I had a really good buddy who had just taken his company public uh, on a sandal uh, product called Tiva, and uh, it was just the right thing at the right time. You know, I'd got so big that it was getting a little bit unwieldy for me, and I, I love the startup phase. I'm not a real big fan of being in a corporation, so the timing was perfect. Yeah, got you. So um, what 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 are you doing right now? Mostly speaking, keynote speaking. I, I wrote a book uh, called The Birth of a Brand, and it's done really well. And that sort of led me to people saying, God, you come, should come and speak to my group, my group, my group, you know. And bit by bit over the last three years, I've grown into loving speaking from the stage. And I've got a really you know, great series of keynotes that I can tailor to different audiences. And it's all about it's stories from the building of the UG brand. But I weave into it a lot of spirituality and 
philosophy and also the bare bones, you know, the boots on the ground tips that you, you know, about building business that you'll never learn in a business school or, or you know, university. Yeah, gotcha. So this, um, let's loop back, Brian. So you said that you saw an ad for sheepskin boots in, in a surf magazine. Now you said you became a distributor. What did you mean by that? So you didn't, um, well, I, I well, realized the concept or. He wanted to sell boots in America and I wanted to, you know, sell them. So what I did was I registered the UGG trademark in California because nobody else had been around who had done it. Nobody had heard the name really, maybe a few people in the surf industry. Yes. And, uh, and so I registered it and I started selling them thinking I was going to be like an instant millionaire because you know how many Australians wear sheepskin footwear, right? Mm. And and I started going up and down the coast to the shoe stores and they were just shutting me out completely. They're like, you know, Brian, who, who cares? You know, sheepskin in California, you're crazy. But I knew that the climate here in California is identical to Perth and Sydney and you know, Melbourne and Adelaide. And so it wasn't the weather. It was just this fact that Americans didn't get sheepskin like Australians do. We, we know it breathes so you can't sweat in it. You can get it wet. It's okay. It's, it's really rugged. You can't rip it. But Americans were thinking, oh, hot and prickly and, and delicate. You can't get it wet. We have mud and slush in America. And, and uh so there was this amazing disconnect. But you know, one of the point, things I point out in my book is that every entrepreneur has to have a certain level of ignorance going into their, their business because if you knew all the obstacles that were ahead, you'd never do it. And this just turned out to be one of those obstacles. It was a big obstacle too, that, you know, this, this lack of awareness. And it took me years to figure out how to easily sell uh, the, the product but, you know, that, that first year when I got shut out by the, the shoe stores, I, I was thinking, well, you know, how come all my buddies up at Malibu think they're great? And it struck me that they all surfed and, and a lot of them had been down to Australia on their surf odyssey and they'd brought a bunch of sheepskin boots back for their buddies. So in the surf community, it was pretty well known. So I, I, I did a tour of the, of the surf shops with my samples and I said, yeah, you know, I'm going to be uh, importing these, you know, they're going, oh man, you're going to be so successful. Those things are fantastic, you know? And every surf shop I went to is the same, the same thing. You, oh, those sheepskin boots. Yeah. My buddies brought some back or they'd say, yeah, I, I own a pair and they're fantastic. You're going to do great. You know? So on the strength of that, without thinking that I should have asked for an order, cause I didn't, I didn't have any inventory. What was the point? You know? So I, I raised some money and and bought 500 pairs into uh, my little third bedroom, which was the international headquarters of UGG now. And uh, I went back on the road to all these surf shops and I had a full inventory and order pads and everything. And, you know, I walked into the first one. He goes, oh, Brian, well done. But, you know, we couldn't sell them out of our store. We just sell surfboards and trunks and, and bikinis and, you know, sandals. And, and But don't worry, you should go to the shoe stores. You'll, you'll do great. And, and that was my first inkling of, uh, uh, you know, and then the next one, oh, well done, Brian. But we couldn't sell them in our store. We just sell surfboards and trunks. And this went on and on and on. Every single surf shop that I'd thought was going to buy from me had an excuse why not to 
And so I, that, that was like late November. And by the time the end of the year rolled around, my total sales for year one was 28 pairs. Just happened to be exactly $1,000, you know. And, and that was like so disappointing. But it became the theme of my book because, uh, you know, if you look at the Wall Street Journal, you know, the, the Sydney Morning Herald, for instance, there's a stock exchange page uh, and look at all the companies listed there. Not one of those started without having to go through that first thousand dollars, right? Hundred percent. Yeah. So the theme of my book became: you can't give birth to adults, and every business or every sitcom on TV or every religion or every sandwich shop, they all start with someone conceiving the idea, and then they give birth by taking the first action. You know, for for the birth of Ugg was buying the first six pairs of samples. And then every business or movement just goes into this horrible infancy and it just lies there and it lies there and it lies there. And that's when most entrepreneurs give up because they think they're failing. They think it's not happening. But, you know, there's no amount of shaking the cradle or overfeeding it or urging it. The infant cannot get up and go to college. It has to go through the infancy. But eventually it'll start toddling and then that's a really cool stage for your business because the first customers are sort of telling people about you and you know people are writing articles about you and it's starting to catch some, some, some traction and that'll eventually lead into the youth, which is the best phase of every business where you've got consistent sales, consistent production, the accounting and billing is working, the customer service is great, you know, the warehouse is fantastic. You can run a business up to 20 million bucks on in that youth phase, but if it's a really, really good product or a really hot service, you know, sort of like UG was, it'll hit the teenage years and then it's like all bets are off. You you remember when you wanted to be in every party around town when you were a teenager? Well, that same temptation comes in a business where you want to be in every trade show in the country and you want to be in every big retailer in the country and it's super, super dangerous because you can outstrip your financing so fast. And I almost lost control of Ugg two or three times in that teenage phase. But, you know, eventually it gets to a point where all the accountants start putting in the controls and it becomes mature. So that, that's the life cycle of every business. And, and the reason it resonates so much from the stage when I speak about it is that, you know, I have people come up to me after my talks and they'll go, oh, my God, Brian, I was thinking of giving up my business this week, but now I realize I'm in the infancy or the toddling stage and you've given me new hope and new heart. And so, the, you know, the speaking and, and my book, which, which goes from birth to, to handing the, the, you know, the, the young child off to her husband, you know, when I sold it to Deckers, it, it's chronologically the story of building Arg and all of the ups and downs that I had with that. Yeah, gotcha. So... When it comes to uh, you, you came up with the brand though. Like you, you saw that someone was selling selling sheepskin boots, and you repackaged it under the UGG brand, right? Uh, yeah, re- repackaged is a. It, it's not correct because it didn't exist in America. Yes, and I knew in Australia that you know this guy Shane Stedman in Sydney had registered UGH down there, and so because there was no evidence of any product in America, the, the law here is you know, if you're the first in and you can prove continual use, then you own the trademark. So so that's how come I 
got to register Arg and keep it. Yes. And then, then I had to build a brand, a brand around the product because the first booths that came in were, were pretty shoddy, you know, yeah, and, and it was just the way they made them back down there. So what I had to do was, was create a brand and th that's a whole story in itself. Yeah, gotcha. So Arg is very well known right. in Australia, yeah. but um, to, were you able to bring the brand to Australia? How did that part work? Well, in Australia, um, I think they delisted it from the trademark register. I'm not 100% sure on that, but everyone can use the name Arg in whatever way they want to do it in Australia. And I do believe since I sold the company, the, 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 the new company, Deckers, I think they have opened up some company stores in Australia. But, you know, the, the trademark issues really stem around international internet business uh, where there's a lot of action of, of, you know, Australians wanting to do their thing overseas, but the American company keeping the tabs on on all of the countries where they have the registered trademark but we don't need to go into that now it's it's i'd rather talk about the marketing and the branding of the company because that's what your listeners are probably wanting wanting to know yeah 100 percent. um i agree uh just wanted to get some clarification that's all sure so um because um the ug the ug like you, the branding piece uh, is is a household name brand. Like yeah. everybody refers, like where I'm from, like UGG boots. You know, they they don't they don't might not necessarily be B by UGG, but everyone calls them UGG boots. These sheepskin that's, boots. That's correct in Australia. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. and that's where I wanted the clarification. So, talk to me. Like, how long ago did you start the UGG brand? Well, the first samples I brought in in 1979 and, uh, you know, the, that first year of sales was 79. And so, you know, I, I was thinking this was going to be an instant millionaire type business. But after that first year I got shut out, I had to start, you know, I had 480 pairs left and all my investors' money was tied up there. So I couldn't just walk away from it. And so I started going to swap meets and street fairs and, you know, I, I, the best thing I had going was uh, when I surfed at Malibu, I had a big van and I, I had it full of inventory and I would just open up the back doors and the word of mouth from all the people who bought from me was so powerful that every day I got more new customers. So, But the sales were only about, you know, $5,000 that next year and then I decided to advertise, so I hired some models and uh, photographer, and we did a shot down at the beach here in in San Diego, and and uh, you know, perfect hair and clothing, and the perfect sunset, and you know, the boots looking perfect up front in the ad, and you know, I ran that in in Surfer Magazine and Action Sports Magazine here, and the sales went to like ten thousand, which was super disappointing. So the next season, I hired better looking models and a more expensive photographer and we posed them on the beach down at, you know, wind and sea here and, you know, and, and ran those ads and, and the sales went to like 15 to $20,000 and, and I couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong until I was having a beer with one of my surf shop owners and I was telling him this problem and he just goes, oh, shut up, Brian. And he calls out the back to all these little 12 or 13 year old grommets. He says, hey guys, what do you think of Uggs? Every one of them just said, oh, those Uggs, man, they're so fake. 
have you seen those those ads, <laughs> those models? They can't surf. And instantly I knew I was sending the wrong image to my target market, you know, mm. and, and it was so obvious. I, I almost kicked myself. So within a couple of days, I, I called up another Aussie, Pete Townend, who, who was a former world surf champion, and he was running a national scholastic surf club up in, in Orange County. And uh, I called him up and said, Pete, do you have any young kids who are going to turn pro soon? Because I can't afford to pay them, but, you know, I'd love – I really need somebody. So he gave me a couple of young kids, Mike Parsons and Ted Robinson, and instead of posing them on the beach, I just took my little Canon Sure Shot with me and we, we went surfing at a place called Black's Beach here in San Diego and another Trestles, which is up in San Clemente. And these are iconic surf walks. You know, it's about a mile to get to the beach and unbelievably good surf at the end of each one and then another mile back, you know. So everyone who's ever surfed knew these walks. And uh, so I just ran ads showing these guys, uh, you know, walking to and from the beach. And I ran those in October, November, December, the following season. The sales went to like $200,000 just purely because I matched the image of what I wanted the kids to sort of buy into with, with the ads. And it was amazing. But in the first ads I ran, the boots were like, you know, a quarter of the ad, you know, by, by, by area. And when I ran these other ones walking to the beach, the boots were like, you know, not even a quarter of an inch on a full page ad, you know? And so it didn't matter. I learned you don't advertise your product. You advertise the benefit and the benefit for all these little kids reading Surfer magazine was, oh my God, if I buy a pair of Uggs, I could be walking on the beach with, you know, on, on you know, those, those tracks with Mike Parsons and Ted Robinson. And it, it, it struck a really emotional chord with all of the young surfers. And that's what just launched the business. And just quickly, that was the beginning of me understanding marketing and advertising. And I eventually became a student. I absolutely loved it. And I was able to translate that into the ski and snowboarding markets. And then, you know, back east where they don't surf, you know, I found that all the kids play ice hockey in the winter. So I was able to use that same concept with young pro hockey players. And that's what really built the brand into a national brand. Yeah, got you. So you started with surfers and then started to, to further niche out. Yeah. Yeah, it was the only way to build it, really, but it wasn't easy. I mean, those first three years, I was working summer jobs. Uh, you know, the first year, I think I was scrubbing boats at Marina del Rey, and the next year, I was a, a laborer, construction laborer in Bel Air up in Beverly Hills, and the third year, I was working as a greenskeeper on a golf course all summer, just trying to survive till the winter hit, you know, so it wasn't easy, but the, the beauty of it is I never gave up. I always, even though it, there were times on the golf course where I think, oh, yeah, that's it. I'm just going to get rid of the inventory. And I'm done, you know. And so it did cross my mind to give up quite a bit. But I recall that it was like October and that's the beginning of the, the winter season here. And this huge storm hit the coast. And when I got home after the golf course one afternoon, the answering machine had about 30 messages from all the you know the surf shops just screaming for new products, so 
where I was one day about to give up, the next day I was full back in business again. And that happened over and over and over. Mm, so how many years, at, at what stage, how many years, like was it year four that you started to get real traction or like yeah, closing into about, the seven uh, figures or can you talk well, about well, that? Well, that, yeah, the, the, it was it was the fifth, fourth or fifth season where I noticed the advertising wasn't working and, and ran the good ads and that was – that was what really kicked it off. That that first two hundred thousand in sales for Christmas. The next year we did about six seven hundred thousand because everybody who who had tried to buy the previous year, you know, all the stores were running out, and I ran out of products. So it was then that it started to become a business, and I had to get in a bigger investor to handle the new volume, and then I was able to work full time on it all, you know, all summer. And bring in temporary help in the in the winter time, so it was about the sixth year where it started to get real traction and became an actual business that was was outside of my bedrooms because I I had three different apartment locations where Ugg was in my spare bedroom. <laughs> yeah, wow. So talk to me about what it takes to create a household name brand. Do you have some rules and principles that you live by? The most important thing for me in creating the UG brand was the customer service because you know your brand your brand is not your trademark and your brand is not your logo and the brand is not your product the brand is what your customers think of it right very critical point your brand is what your customers think of it and so i was always out there trying to work with all my retailers to make sure the product looked good on the shelves and to make sure they had the right product and the colors and si styles and sizes. And I just wanted my, every, every retailer to be successful. And so what happened is that year after year, I would be out working with the retailers and, and because they saw my dedication and because I had the inventory so well stocked in the stores that the product was working. And it, it was probably after about, I don't know, the seventh, sixth or seventh year, I was in one store, Encinita Surfboards, and I, it struck me, you know, I, I've been selling these guys for seven or eight years, and this year they ordered about $80,000 worth of product from me, which means they sold it, you know, they doubled the price. They just made 80000 profit. And I thought, well, the rent on this little shop is only about 30000 a year, so that's like 50,000 bu 50, bucks to pay the salaries. And, and when I figured that you could pay half his staff on that, I thought, my God, everything else in, he sells in this store, you know, surfboards and leashes and all that, it's straight bottom line. And, and I, I started to realize that, oh, my God, I'm not, you know, I, I'd always thought of sales as trying to get something from somebody. But now I realized sales was giving something. And, I, and, and as soon as I realized that, my God, I'm giving this guy 80 grand profit. And I started to think of every other retailer I had. And I thought, I started calculating how much profit I was giving every one of them. I then changed my complete attitude to 100% customer service and forget the sale. You know, the, the sales are going to happen if you service the customers. And so you asked the question, what was the most important point in building the brand? Well, let's fast forward a few years when one of my financing partners died and the supplier I had didn't think I was going to be able to pull it together for the season. And unbeknownst to me, he started up 
with a different distributor over in California, but he didn't sort of tell me black and white, I'm out. He sort of played along that he was still in my game as long as I could find some money, you know. And anyway, it got to be the you know, close to the shipping time. And I'd realized that, you know, this is bad. Uh, I don't think I'm going to get any product from him. And, and by this time, you know, the sales are four or five million dollars. So yes. I had I had to scramble. I found another guy in, in Melbourne uh, who owned a big tannery and he supplied to a lot of manufacturers. And he ended up producing product for me, but very, very late in the game. In fact, I, I happened to go up to a trade show that, you know, in September, which was our you know, every year was the, the show that sort of kicked off the winter season. And I'd set up, even though I didn't have my supply intact yet, and I walked over and found this other booth, uh, a company called Thunderwear, which was a windsurfing company, and and they had taken on the, the sheepskin boot line from my former supplier, and I saw all of my product on his shelves with the, the label Thugs, and oh and I and I just went, oh my god, I am I am out of business, you know, and. I called up the guy in Melbourne who I'd been talking with, but we'd never really done a deal. And I told him what had happened and, you know, he was sad and we, we hung up and, you know, I went to bed that night and at two in the morning, he calls up and says, Hey, screw that West Aussie. I'll get you all the boots you need. And, you know, I sent the patterns down and he duplicated them and sent them out to a bunch of manufacturers. And pretty soon I was getting 5,000 pairs a week in, you know, at the end of September, October, November, December. And even though we threw away a million bucks worth of orders, we were able to stay in business with the UGG product. And the reason I'm telling this story, it's a little long-winded, is that between Christmas and New Year, the customs broker screwed up and he shipped – 2,000 pairs of thugs boots to me and 1,000 pairs of my boots up to, to the thugs guy. So because I needed my boots so badly, I, I offered to drive up and swap them around, and, and I did. And I was on the way back to San Diego. It's you know, about a 60-mile drive. I was halfway back, and I was thinking, you know, how come we couldn't keep product in our warehouse for 24 hours and it was gone, and yet these thugs guys – whose warehouse was bigger than ours, was floor to ceiling full of thugs' boots, right, unsold. And that's when it struck me, the loyalty of all my customers, you know, because of the customer service that I'd been giving, the loyalty was so powerful that they would rather forgo, you know, a couple of million dollars worth of profit, you know, combined, rather than deal with this guy who they knew tried to knock it up, knock me off, you know, and that was a, an incredible testimony to the amount of hours and, and time I'd put in becoming friends with all of my customers. And, you know, in today's world where things tend to happen with online web pages and clicks and purchases, if you're in the internet business selling over the internet, you must find a way to reach out and become more personal with your customers, whether it's putting a handwritten note in the packaging when you send it, you know, something personal, or whether you have a team of people that are calling up random, you know, buyers and, you know, thanking them and asking them how the product's working for them. And, you know, it, it, those people who can maintain some sort of personal 
uh, interaction with your customers in this this crazy internet world, they're the ones that are going to survive because if it's just a click and no loyalty, they'll never come back. It's just going to be another you know, who's who's faster, who's cheaper. Yeah, gotcha. That's interesting. So, whatever happened to that other brand? I I really don't know. In, in all these years, I've been asked that question. I never saw them come in and flood the marketplace like the retailers wouldn't touch them because, again, I'd built up this incredibly strong, powerful image around the UGG brand and it was so cool to have a pair of UGG boots at school that, that you know, when, when, when moms who didn't know would buy these other boots, you know, the kids had refused to wear them to school because they, they were made fun of for wearing fake UGGs. Yeah, you know? wow. And so – they must have closed them out somewhere. I don't know, probably South America or something. I, I have no idea, but I never saw them come into the marketplace. Mm, interesting. So sounds like um, for a good long time, it's um, Uggs, uh, was always a B2B play. At any point, did you go to B2C, direct-to-consumer? In a small way, but not really because – I sold it in the late 95 and the desktop computers were just coming on to the desks at that time and the internet hadn't even started. So although I did do a few little warehouse sales and stuff like that to consumers, the answer is no, we were always marketed wholesale. Yeah, got you. And and when did you end up selling the company? Can you tell me how that came about? Because you said that um, you got to about $20 million and uh, yeah. Yeah, you, it was you late some 90- sort of maturity. It was late 95, and, and when I was starting the business, you know, selling out of the back in the van in Malibu, there was another van a couple of, you know, places up with a, this young guy selling uh, neoprene sandals, and they were, they were like high heel sand, you know, thongs, and they were triple deckers, and he started a company called it Deckers. And over the years, he built that by bringing, you know, different brands on. He was basically a, a, a sales rep for different brands. And uh, he finally got the license for Tiva Sandals, which I'm, I, I'm sure we're in Australia at some point, the T-E-V-A brand, Teva. And uh, he took his company public on that brand. And I knew he was sitting around with about 25, 30 million bucks in the bank. And I had just received a report from the preseason sales of, of UG, and I knew we were going to be looking at a $20 million season and I had no, no idea how to finance the production, right? Mm. And uh, even Doug with and previous, I, even with previous profit and capital from yeah, from because, previous years. Yeah. Well, the trouble was that that the the bigger the company got, the worse became the cash flow because of the demands. After the season ended, you had to wait for to collect all the money from the re- retailers, and but all the trade shows were happening, all the expenses were going out the door, new samples, which cost a lot of money because we had 30, 40 reps at this time, and they all had to have a full product line of samples. So, you know, there was hundreds of thousands of dollars having to go into this pre-season stuff. And then, you know, when, when you were only ordering – uh, you know, 500 pairs of boots, the manufacturer could bankroll you. But now you want 500,000 pairs of boots and, and and you know, they can't do that. So it, it became a financing issue. But anyway, I, I was uh, traveling to a, a big trade show called the Super Show in Atlanta 
uh, one year in, in 95 and I knew I had this problem because I'd just seen the reports and down the other end of the baggage claim was Doug and I just got goosebumps and I thought, oh my God, it's so perfect. We we joked about buying each other out when we saw each other on the road, you know, where we would joke, ah, oh, you can't afford me and so, but you know, I walked down the baggage claim area and he saw me coming and we, we high-fived and I said, Doug, if ever we're going to do it, now's the time because his company died every winter and our company died every summer. So by putting together, you had a 12-month round cash flow and a 12-month warehouse operation, a 12-month sales operation. Everything mm. just clicked so perfectly. And so by the that afternoon, we had the accountants talking to each other and we We'd figured out, you know, we were going to join forces. And so for me, it was like going public without even having to go public. You know, I just cashed out and it was great. And the time was right because I, I love starting companies. I, I love the the uncertainty and the, you know, the fear that, that comes into the new business. But I really don't like being in corporate America. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. Are you able to share the details of the sale? Well, it was a publicized down there, but I, I don't talk about it, on, you know, on the air. It, it was I made many millions of dollars, you know. That's all I'll say. And uh, it was it was just a fantastic exit. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, fantastic. Um. So, a few questions we have to work towards wrapping up, Brian. Uh, this is a great okay. conversation, mate. Um. Thanks. I'm curious. Uh, you said you had investors in the early stage, and then obviously you sold. Uh, twenty years later. What happened to the uh, did were those investors were like when you you know when when you get on investors right there is generally some sort of anticipation that you will sell. How, how did you keep those investors at bay running the company for twenty years before you sold it? Or well, this, it's, this, still- this is this is a really really important piece of information for the listeners. If you're starting out and you got friends and family that are bankrolling you and you need to get bigger, this is usually the cycle. Okay, so I had some friends and family put in twenty grand at first twenty thousand, yes, and and that lasted for about a year and a half, two years, and then, but it's about four years, and then we had that two hundred thousand dollar year of sales, and we instantly had to scramble for more product. Well, these investors, the original ones, couldn't they they didn't have any more money, so I had to get a second investor in. So we all had to dilute down to fifty percent. And then that guy bought a container of boots, which was about $100,000, and that was his investment. And then we needed to get a couple of containers, and he didn't have any, enough money to go any further. And so I had to find new investors, but they and I did find some, but they didn't want the old ones hanging around. So I personally had to buy out the old investors just to be able to grow the business to the next phase. And then... That one ran really well for about three or four years until we're now we're hitting four or five million, and these guys didn't have the ability to bankroll it past that. And so I was able to get new investors in, but they didn't want the old investors. <laughs> so each time I had to keep buying out the, the old investors, and, and, and I had to pay dearly for that. But the point is, had I not done that, my biggest problem was the bankers would not accept UGG as a viable business. Number one, it was fashion-driven in their mind. It was a fad. It'll never be around next year. Even after 10 years, 
they were saying, oh, it's a fad. It'll never be around next year. The other thing was it was highly seasonal. So our sales all happen in two or three months. And, you know, they knew that once we do the collections, we're dead for the next six or seven months until we sell again. And they knew that the more successful I was, the bigger requirement for cash was going to be for inventory. So even though I was a chartered accountant, I didn't really understand finance that well. And, and looking back, if I had to change one thing, I would have brought on a financier, you know, someone who knew the, how to model uh, cash flow forecasting because it was a, you know, it was an alien thing for me at the time. So anyway, back to the investors. There is no easy answer unless you have a product that sells 12 months of the year and you can scale it. It's it's scalable on the internet. They're easy to bankroll. They're really easy to find one investor, and that that one investor will probably be there when you. Uh, do cash out in a big way. And that's that was always the ideal for me. I always thought each investor coming in would be there at the end, but circumstances were, were different for me. And, and it will be for many, many of you investors who are in the friends and family stage looking at the early angels. But again, if you have a really good, solid product, service, whatever, that's 12 months around a year. So you've got your own cash flow. You're not beholden on anybody else uh, for inventory. Then you can scale at your own pace. And, and th th that way you'll keep your investors. Mm, yeah, no, that's great advice. Um, another question, you talked about uh, spirituality throughout your journey. What did you mean by that? Well, I just came to learn that you know, the number of times I'd get goosebumps when I'd be faced with a momentous decision and I'd make a choice and I, or I'd, I'd see like the, the minute I saw that ad for, for sheepskin boots and I, I just got so many goosebumps there because I, I, I just knew here's the potential of a huge, huge business. And what I've come to believe is that, that we've got this, this energy force inside us and you can call it God or spirit or whatever it is. But it has some sort of pre-knowledge of where it wants to go with our lives. And every time we make a decision that's in alignment with that sort of inner, inner leading, it sends us a message. And the only way it can get to us is through this electrochemical system we call our body. And it puts a tingle there. And, 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 and I ask people in the audiences every time on stage, I say, you know, who's, who's had goosebumps? And I would say every single person in the audience puts up their hand and I, I'm talking goosebumps in relation to a uh, business decision and things like that. So I'd encourage your audience to, to, uh, you know, just be aware of that happening. And, it, and if it is, if you do get the goosebumps, just go, Oh my God, what just happened then? And try and analyze it. And I'll bet you it'll be something of, of real importance. And then there's the other side of it, which is very philosophical. I have these four mantras that I've used Oh, for the last 20 years, I've been carrying these four forward in my daily planner. I typed them out one day 20 years ago. And it's feast upon uncertainty, fatten upon disappointment, invigorate in the presence of difficulties, and enthuse over apparent defeat. And they sound like negatives, but in fact, they're the foremost positive statements that you can ever find. And it doesn't matter what happens in your business. If you can, you know, if it's a, just a horrible thing that happens, if you can 
feast upon the uncertainty of what's going to happen or, or, you know, get fat on the disappointment that, you know, it didn't work out the way you thought and maybe next time it will. It's uncanny how fast things turn around. And, and there's another way of saying it, which is also in my book, which is the most disappointing disappointments will nearly always become your greatest blessings. And put in other words, you know, I ask the audience, you know, put your hand up if you had something really disastrous happen in the last 12 months and now you look back and you think it's the best thing that ever happened. And <laughs> nearly 80% of the audience puts their hand up. So it's a really really true uh, philosophical statement. The one people remember a year later is this one, and that is the quickest way for a tadpole to become a frog is live every day happily as a tadpole. And it's it, it sounds really trite, but that's the most, that's probably the best bit of advice I could give to every entrepreneur starting up because you're going to be in the infancy and you're going to be in the toddling stage. And if you can just live every day and now like a, like a tadpole, you know, time's going to come when you're going to look down and go, oh, shit, I've got legs, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a frog. And you won't even notice it happening as long as you're happily doing all the tadpole things. Mm, love it. Awesome. Well, um, Look, uh, we have to work towards wrapping up, Brian. This has been an awesome okay. conversation, mate. But uh, question, um, where's the best people can find out more about your book, your work, and everything else you do? Sure. I have a website, which is briansmithspeaker.com. That's B-R-I-A-N, smithspeaker.com. And you can get to me there if you know, you're thinking of getting uh, a keynote going. I would love to come do a, a bunch of keynotes in Australia. Uh, I have done some already, but I, I really love coming and talking to the Australian audiences. And also the book's available. The, the Birth of a Brand uh, is available on that website, but you can also uh, download it on Amazon. And it, it's turned out to be a really, really good seller and a really fast read, I think, because most people are never sure I'm going to be around next chapter, so, so they tend to read it pretty quickly. You know? mm, awesome. All right, mate. Well, look, um, we'll wrap there, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for your time. Uh, this is an awesome interview, awesome conversation. The Founder Podcast has come to a close, but it's not time to sleep. It's time to hustle. Download the Richard Branson issue of Founder Magazine for free right now by visiting foundermag.com slash Branson. Again, that's an absolutely free download of the Richard Branson issue of Founder Magazine containing an exclusive interview with the man himself. It's only available at foundermag.com slash Branson. So download it now and we'll see you next time on the Founder Podcast.